welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and hope you enjoy this edition of Bolin's Alley. You can find out more about us at alleninvestments.com. Glad to have you along for the ride today. You know something? I'm just always happy to be here. I'm glad I made it here today. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got, I've got sort of a, an overarching topic today with a little saying that goes along with it. Okay, well... Prep us though. Are we we are talking a little bit about AI, or we're not, not talking AI about AI this time? Oh, good. Not this time. We're just going to move in and talk about money. Oh, people love talking yeah, about money. See, so the title, kind of my working title today, is "Money Talks, But Why Does Nobody Listen?" I love it. So we're going to kind of break this into to a history lesson and sort of a behavior lesson. Okay. Today, all right. So if we think about the changing value of how we define money, this is the boring part. I'm, we'll get to more exciting. But, okay. <laughs> you should never start a, a podcast out with this is the boring I part. <laughs> I know. <laughs> None but, of them are boring. But I promise not to get out and into the weeds too much. Okay. We'll reel you back in if Please we need do. to. Please do. I, I need a hook anyway, right? Okay. Today, so. <laughs> so anyway, in money supply, there's definitions of money. It isn't just like cash and whatever. So old reason is called like M1 and M2. Okay. All right. Well, the value of how the economists would use and the Federal Reserve would use M1 and M2 has changed over time dramatically. And so one of the things that I want everybody to start to think about today as we go through this is that how you think about money has changed over time. And why the way we think differently and the way we think differently across generations impacts the effectiveness that the Fed can be when they try to control it. Especially with five working generations. Especially with five working generations. Okay. Okay. This is good. All right. So then there's also sort of the psychological difference that I want to touch on a little bit today between using cash when you go to pay for things Versus simply putting it on a credit card. He's smiling at me right now like I might do the latter more than I'm, I do the, I'm the not, former. <laughs> I'm not, you know. Tim, did, did I look at her like that's what I was thinking? We don't judge here. We don't <laughs> judge. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Except you. for that. Thank you. Thank you. So, so anyway, that muffles the impact of what the Fed tries to do with the money supply because they can't control credit cards. And so credit card spending was one of the first things that happened, even almost 50 years ago now, where all of a sudden their way, their ability to control money and thereby control interest rates and thereby control inflation changed dramatically. Because it no longer was a matter of how much money do I have in a checking account or how much cash do I have that I can buy something. It's how much of a payment can I afford at the end of the month on a credit card? That is the question. And so same thing on a house. It's not how much the house is, it's how much is the house payment. It's not how much the car is, it's how much is the car payment. Now, auto manufacturers, not the stupidest people on earth, realized, gee, why should businesses be the only one that ever have leases? I'll bet we could lease to people and we can get lower payments and we'll sell more cars that way. So anyway, all of the dynamics of money have changed dramatically from the 1950s to today. And we want to talk about that. We want to... What I want to really get you to think about is what makes up money supply, how has it changed, and I want to weave that into the credit card debt and student loan debt, which is obviously always a hot topic, and how it's dampened 
that behavioral impact that cash used to have. Is that? That's a big, huge topic. Yeah, I know. But hey, what the heck? Let's tackle it. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. All right. So let's go back to the measures of money supply. M1, M2. M1 is sort of the very narrowest definition of money. It's currency. It's the actual money that's out there held by the public, along with checking accounts. All your checkable, what are called checkable deposits. By far the most liquid. That used to be what the Fed in the 50s would concentrate on looking at because most people, individual consumers that make up 70% of your GDP, either bought things in cash or they bought them with their checks in a checking account. M2 is a broader measure that includes everything in M1, okay? But it also savings deposits, time deposits, and things that didn't exist in the 1950s, money market funds. So do you kind of see what might start happening here? I mean, I don't write checks hardly at all on a checking account anymore. I write them on my money market, for example. So they're able to capture more of the actual, the the wider breadth of the dollar flow. Exactly. So they had to focus on M2 because if they just looked at M1, like for me, I almost never use cash. I almost never write a check on a regular bank account. When I write a check... I either write a check on my money market account or more than likely I use a straight debit card out of the money market account. None of those are included in M1. So the Fed had to start looking more and more at M2 as a way to try to control inflation spending interest rate. And there's not too many actual checking, just checking accounts anymore. I think almost all of them have just become money market accounts over the last decade or so. And because guess what? You don't pay interest on regular checking accounts, which, by the way, as a short segue here today, one of the dilemmas, if you've followed what's happened in the banking world, you know, with all of a sudden deposits leaving a lot of these banks because they're not paying, Mm -hmm. a lot of the smaller banks where they are at risk is because there are some regional banks that have up to 20% of all of their deposits pay zero interest. And those are the ones that are at most risk for leaving that bank and going somewhere else. So we're seeing huge changes in not only how people think of money, but how banks have to manage their money. So it's... We didn't... We weren't hearing about this 15 years ago, were we? No. Really? No. We weren't hearing about this 10 years ago. No. Now this this is... Is this because of the recent, using air quotes, collapse with... Is it, it? Does it tie into that? It does tie into that. Okay. But the reason it didn't become an issue before is because after the financial crisis, the Fed had held rates at zero for so long, is that even if you were in a money market account, you weren't making any interest. And because it can be such a pain to switch from a checking account in a bank to something else, people had no incentive to move it. Okay. But guess what? With inflation in double digit. And money markets being a thousand percent of what they were five years ago, mm-hmm. now it's become more of an issue. I got you. Okay. So it's so as you can see, because of various changes in the sort of the economic landscape, the economy was cash based. They were using physical currency. Then it was on checkings, and M one had the most direct impact on economic activity. Changes in the quantity of money were much easier to manage. Because what's in circulation and what was in the checking accounts. 
However, with the rise of digital payment systems, increasing use of non-cash transactions, M1 really, nobody talks about M1 anymore. Well, I shouldn't say no one. I did. I've been talking about M1, but, but you'll never, I shouldn't say never, you'll almost never hear an economist talk about M1. The focus is always on M2. So the shift is due again, what's happened with transfers, what's happened with non-checkable deposits, and, it's, and it now is including savings, money market funds, et cetera. So what you'll see, if you follow what the Fed talks about now on occasion, what you'll see him talk about is just that, what's going on with M2. One of the people that we use every year that always comes back to Lakeland is Brian Westbury. Mm-hmm. And, and Brian, over the last five years, at least three or four, has focused when he's, when he's been talking to us M2. about how fast M2 has grown. Mm-hmm. But if, if you go back, and I, you probably can, I can only go back about 15 years. But if you went back to when he first started talking about these things, he would have been looking at M1 and probably in addition to M2. Okay. So anyway, here we go. We've talked about M1. We've talked about M2. It's important, I think, to note the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world do still focus on those definitions of money as part of their monetary policy framework. They, they absolutely do. They've got a lot of different tools to use, what are called open market conditions. They've got reserve requirements they can put on banks. They've got interest rate adjustments, as we've all well seen over the last two years. And when we come back... We're going to talk a little bit more about what now has started to happen, and I'm going to go into a little bit of a history lesson. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Boland's Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Boland. We're talking about money today, how it's defined, how it's used, how it's managed, all of those things. And I was talking about before the break, the M1 and M2 measures of money supply and how it's changed over time. And M1 certainly still is important for assessing the very, very short-term liquidity and transactions. But M2 is the one that almost all economists talk about now. So understanding, I think, these measures and how they've changed is crucial not only for us as individuals, but for policymakers in how they formulate effective monetary policy and try to manage macroeconomic activity. I mean, it's just, it is. So what I want to do in this segment, though, is go back and kind of do the history of the credit card. Many people probably don't ever remember when there wasn't such a thing as a credit card. I think as long as I've been around, I think there's been a credit card, I think. I've got a few key milestones here that I made note of. Okay. So the very first widely used club card, credit card, was Diners Club. I remember Diners Club. 1950, which is even older than me. Wow. (laughs) It was introduced, and it was the very first widely accepted charge card. And it was mostly used for entertainment and travel expenses, and they targeted a very wealthy clientele. But 1950. Then, eight years later, in 1958... American Express was launched. Expanded the concept of credit-like card to a broader consumer base, okay? Offered benefits like extended payment terms. Oh my gosh, you mean I don't have to 
I, I don't have to go to a zero balance every month. The ability to actually carry a balance, that was an entirely new concept in 58. Diners Club, you had to pay for every month. Every month, yeah. yeah. And wasn't it, well, I mean, if I remember correctly, and I'm probably off in that, just for the record, was before my time. Um, I believe that that was oftentimes business people, too. Exactly. That's really the the executive was the About person. the only people who could really afford or, a credit card were yes. business executive people. Exactly. That, that their corporation, the, the company was paying exactly. for. So right. we started out with very wealthy people with Diners Club. Then we went to corporate target, broader base, but corporate target still with American Express. They went head to head with Diners Club. Oh yes, yeah, and they buried offered it. offered better terms, and they they buried yes, it. Yes, they did. Now let's also at that same time, what is now called Visa was launched as Bank AmeriCard, offered by guess who Bank of America, and they introduced that in 1958 also as a regional credit card program and only in the state of California. That's where it was launched. Visa, really? It eventually went nationwide and then became what we now well know as Visa. Eight years later, Master Charge, now known as Master Card, a group of banks formed the Interbank Card Association. Now, these, these banks weren't stupid. They were seeing a lot of ways to get us consumers to spend more money than what we just had on our accounts. And now they could start charging interest on those ongoing balances. So it made a lot of sense. But but I still remember the first sort of card I got when, when Linda and I first got married. It was in the first year we got married. And that goes back over 50 years now. Congratulations. Over 50. But we got a Sears card. Oh, I think everybody did that. Exactly. I know my parents did that. No, no, exactly. Even though at that point, we would have never qualified for any, any the Visa or or the MasterCard. We didn't have the income to do that. Well, and that's the, uh, and that's a really critical point, I think, that, you know, you just brought up. It's not like it is today. Everybody qualifies, right? Yeah. That That's part of the problem. Everybody's qualified for a credit card. And I remember the department store cards were kind of, I guess, the entry-level thing for yes, just sure. everybody. Yes, sure. Yes, exactly. Gas, gas company cards. Yeah. Yes, gas cards and store cards. Yeah. Retail. Mm-hmm. Retail. And and that was the first one we got was a Sears card. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other one may have been a gas card, as you, as you just said. Probably don't remember that, but it probably was. So you really saw some dramatic changes. You saw some dramatic changes kick in in the 60s and the 70s, that where money started to be less controllable by the Federal Reserve as more people started using credit, uh, even though they shouldn't. And I remember in particular... This was probably in the 1990s, where all of these credit card companies started going to college campuses to sign up students to get credit cards. It was before then. Who had no business getting credit cards, as that's my personal opinion, mm-hmm. okay? But, and, and so, it just, as you just said, anybody could get a credit card at that point, which was not the case for a lot of years. And then in the 1970s and 80s, now you start getting the strips, the magnetic strips on mm-hmm. the back of the cards. So now you had more secure, more efficient. And so now a lot of smaller stores that didn't accept cards started accepting cards. And that was also, by the way, when the store credit cards really started losing their market share. 
because now almost anybody could start to get them. They, the magnetic was, was better than what they had in the store. It was, it was a safer transaction. Mm -hmm. I still remember, uh, my wife bought a dress for $76 and 70 cents. I remember the amount to this day. And that would have been in 1973, probably, probably 50 years ago Okay, on our Sears card. And it never got billed. It never got billed. Never got billed. Because if that little bit of carbon paper from the uh, transaction never got it never got entered. And they never right. matched up the inventory to ever see that. I even asked about it. Linda thought I, well, thought I was stupid, but I would say, you know, are you sure you don't have some? Because we've got no, no record of it. Yeah, I remember the retail. I just remember that big, all the retailers that course where you and i are from while dayton hudson corp mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. large large company yes. um birth birth of target birth actually. of target yes but dayton dayton's was my first credit card that and then i think i got to a point where i ended up coming into this business then i had a a healthier income sure. so I, I got a visa card you got a then. Visa. yeah but i but that's very, very interesting. I think that's probably for retailers, too, where they had to become competitive. This is a, is definitely off track for what you, where Not you're really. going. But Not really. they started adding on services yes. in these retail locations. So they were starting to go, they, they were starting to bring more opportunity in for credit card users and became more and that started spinning off things like the Discover card and all of the benefits that they offered, yes. and then the airline miles and this and that. And it became, it, you know, a big competition between the credit companies to get your money. To get your money. And all of those things made it more and more difficult for the Federal Reserve and for macro policy to contain spending, which could push up inflation. It's There were a lot of things going on in the 70s with the oil crisis, Vietnam wound down in the early 70s. But a big chunk of that was because that is when all of this credit availability exploded. And so it does. It shouldn't surprise that we had very high interest rates that took a while to get back under control because none of the mechanisms that they had were able, were were able to manage the money. Were able to manage the money because they didn't have any ability to put credit card limits on, on your spending or, you know. So it just... All of those things in the 70s and early 80s when it exploded on top of everything else, it, you sort of hit that breaking point. You hit a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And part of that probably is why we saw such high inflation in that period. Well, I'll come back to a little bit of that a little okay. later. Terrific. Sorry we're getting a nice history lesson here today. Uh, by the way, I have not forgot debit cards. Debit cards now gained popularity in the 1990s. We're up to only 30 years ago now, right? <laughs> And they allow consumers to make them directly from their checking accounts. This was a good way for banks to try to keep control of M1. Because and, and M1. Play, and, pl and play in the credit And play in game. the credit game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when we come back from break, I will start off with sort of the very last thing that triggered all of this, that made all of these cards so much more available online shopping and e-commerce. The rise of the internet, that great, wonderful tool that so many of us now use. So when we come back here after this break, let's start to see the impact the internet may have had on the money supply. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Bolin's Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and we're just kind of walking down the trail of money and how we can spend it over the last 75, 80 years. And before the break, we were all the way up to the 1990s when online shopping and e-commerce started. First of all, does it feel like the 1990s was really that long ago? Not from my point. No, not from my point of view. No. <laughs> oh my and, god. And I can really relate to that. I mean, I I had an online business in the 1990s, and I remember the town I lived in at the time had fiber cable, which most people were still on modems. If you remember the sound effect of those modems, oh, anybody out there, sure. right? But we had fiber, so I actually had very fast cable service. And so as I built, I built, it was a bookstore, not that anybody that knows me would be surprised that I would have had a bookstore, but, um, but I had an online bookstore, I built it and I started tracking when people would buy things. And, uh, I assumed most people would buy either in the evening or on weekends. And it turned out that wasn't the case at all. Most of my buying, and I lived in the Midwest at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was in the central time zone. The vast majority of my sales online were between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. Lunchtime. Lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Now, why were people buying books during lunchtime in the 1990s? Oh, no. That's a perfectly good question that I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the answer. We didn't have... We, we we didn't have this. No. We did not have the phones. No. So we did not have, am I going down the right path? You're going path? down the right path. What did you have at home? If you had a lap, if you had a computer, was it still running on a, on the modem at real slow speed? Oh, yeah. What did you have at work? Oh, at work. Oh, that's right. Everybody that's what we did. At work. During yes. lunch, we all, that we shopped, we did lots of things on our work computers. Because I, you didn't have to pay for the internet connection. <laughs> and, it <was> <laughs> and it was faster. it was faster, So most people were buying books online during their lunch hour on their corporate computers. I had a business in, well, I won't even mention the city. It was in the Midwest. Okay. Who, around this time in the late 90s, was starting to notice that their lunch business, in, they were in a downtown district of a city, was going down. They weren't getting as many people in for lunch. People were bringing their lunch to work. And they were doing what online? Shopping. They were shopping. Staying in there, eating in the office. So through a friend, I, I did some consulting, because back then I did a lot of consulting. I did some consulting. I said, I'll tell you, tell you what. I know this isn't going to make sense, but put your menu online. Go out and put your menu online. Allow people to order either by phone or online and let them come pick it up. And that's what they did and got, got their business back. Now, again... Today, that sounds like, oh, well, of course they do that. But, but this was like 1998. Nobody was doing that in 1998. But again, how do people spend money? How do they spend their time? Now you've got internet. Changed. It made it even easier. Convenience. For convenience to spend money and put it on your charge cards. And then what have we had in the last 10 years? Mobile payments. So wonderful. With the proliferation of the smartphone your mobile payment options, I won't mention the names, but there's several out there, right? They gained traction over the last 10 years 
which is now a whole nother new way to pay. So without a doubt, credit card usage and adoption has evolved numerous times from 1950. Every time it's evolved, it has influenced changes in technology, it's influenced changes in consumer behavior, and it's influenced changes at the government level on regulatory environment because they're always a step behind on how to try to regulate things. So it's, it's been driven by convenience, uh, consumer changes. A lot of people, even 15 years ago, 20 years ago, wouldn't shop online even though it was out there. It wasn't safe even though you could tell them it was probably safer than what they were using on their credit cards. So we've had a lot of changes. Money supply has seen consistent growth because of those factors. And in many cases, it's almost grown too fast. And what we have seen from the, from the pandemic is that we put an enormous amount of money out there into the money supply. The last time we saw this sort of thing was in the 1980s because of deregulation, a lot of the new ways of spending money. We saw higher inflation rates, and so the Fed started putting in tighter monetary policies as they tried to figure out how to bring this whole thing under control. And that was 40 years ago. So it shouldn't be surprising now coming out of the pandemic, if you listen to the news on occasion— Every now and then say, inflation or XYZ, this is the highest it's been in 40 years. Well, guess what was 40 years ago? That was when all of this started happening. Yeah, 80s, the era where they encouraged you to spend every single cent you had. Exactly. Don't worry, it's just credit. Yeah, it's just credit. If you can afford the payments, go ahead and spend it. Well, Even if you couldn't afford the well, payments, it, just spend it. It had nothing to do with what you had. It had everything to do with what you wanted. Yeah, exactly. it, didn't, it didn't matter. It but didn't credit matter. made that easy. You could get everything you wanted just with that little bit of plastic. Yep. Don't worry about the payments. That's something for later. <laughs> well, and I think... Um, on just a quick note on what you said earlier, our friend Brian Westbury has been talking about this exact situation that we are in the middle of. We are. Yeah. He was talking about that what, two, three, three years three ago. Three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. He was saying we're borrowing on our when, children's and grandchildren's future. That first time he had to it. do the when the pandemic and actually we couldn't have people there. Right. We had Brian still came and we he had came. 50 people in a very large room. I was very lucky to be one of those few yeah. people that was in the room with my mask on. Mm-hmm. We all had our masks yeah. on. Mm-hmm. But he, that that was when he really was focusing on what they'd started to do at that point with the money supply. Wow. So if you go back to the financial crisis, right, the 2007, 2008, 2009, it led to a lot of disruptions in the economy. And so... The Fed at that point did a lot of things to try to stabilize the system. Again, we're, we're, we're always trying to react instead of being proactive. And what we had at that point that gets back to what we were just talking about was what was called quantitative easing or oh QE, for <laughs> want of a better term. All right? And that led, as we just said, to a substantial increase in the money supply. So then the growth rates, we had low interest rates, we had the recovery, and away it went. We just just had all this huge, huge growth. 
So how do we get that back kind of under control is, is one of the bigger issues facing us today on, you know, what do we do with that? And can the Fed effectively do this or do we need some other sort of way to try to manage it? Well, I think that's one of the bigger questions, isn't it? Who should be managing this? Mm -hmm. Isn't that, I mean, is, is the Fed outdated? Isn't that one of the things that we read about every once in a while and the pundits and everybody gets wound up about. I'm pretty certain there's always somebody out there that said, the Fed is archaic. Get rid yeah. of it. Well, what else should replace it? Um, we don't know. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is, I think the Fed has has morphed as we've gone through the years, certainly. Mm -hmm. And they've just got to, you've got to keep trying to understand how consumer behavior how do I try to do these sort of things to, to try to manage it? I don't think you just get rid of it, but you have to adapt. Well, I don't think there's, yeah, I don't think there's any question. It's not going to be gotten rid of, but no. it's, it is going to have to be flexible. Yeah. Right. And that's typically not a descriptor for the fed. No <laughs> flexible. No. Okay. <clears throat> well, when we come back for our last segment here, I'm going to talk a little bit about one of the problems is noise. One of the problems that we're facing today is instead of quantitative easing, the Fed has raised interest rates dramatically, but we're also going through a phase of quantitative tightening as they're trying to take some of that back out that they put in. And that has the very same impact as if they were continuing to raise interest rates. So you don't see a whole lot that they're talking about that, everybody's focused on, is the Fed going to raise interest rates again? But even if they stop raising interest rates, as they continue to pull money back out of the system... It still tightens. It tightens yeah. it and has the same impact. Right. So that's, that's something that we're going through right now. So we're going to talk a little bit about noise. We're going to talk a little bit about some other potential issues of what we've always looked at and is it important anymore when we come back right after this break. Welcome back to Boland's Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Boland, and boy, we have been talking about money and credit card and how it's changed over the years. And one thing uh, I just want to mention in passing, this isn't money per se, but one of the things that we've talked about over the years that people have often used instead of money is gold, all right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's been used as a store of value. And now over the last 10 years, what have many people decided is going to replace gold is some sort of crypto, crypto. right? Mm -hmm. So those are, are things that are supposed to be sort of maybe store of value, maybe it's safe. Yeah. Is anything safe? Exactly, I mean, exactly. Why are we trying to recreate the wheel? And, and so then on top of that, because there's so much more data out there now, we've become what I call data dependent, right? We, we, we sort of just, I can't make a decision until I look at all the data. Of course, by the time you get all the data, it's outdated <laughs> right. and, and you can't make it's, good decisions. Yeah, it's too fluid. Because so much of what's in there is noise. Okay. We, we just have so much noise. And random noise can really confound how the economy changes based on what the Fed is trying to do 
with changes in Fed policy because noise adds those unpredictable fluctuations that really hide what's actually happening with the policy actions because all of those happen with a lag and don't happen immediately. immediately. So let's say you decide you want to – and I'm a, I'm a stat guy. I love statistics, right? So I'm going to do statistical analysis on this. All right. So I'm looking at the Fed policy changes on the economy, and I'm using my model to really isolate the causal relationship. I've got this down. I look at all my data, and it just looks squirrely. I mean, it's all over the place because random noise adds all that noise into the data. And it makes it very difficult to actually figure out what the true effects of the policy that you're trying to do based on the lag. So now I've got to really, all right, is it happening three months? Is it six months? Is it nine months? And it overshadows or actually distorts the signal that we're trying to get from the data. And that leads to the wrong interpretations or very weak correlations. And again, I want to start using statistical terms, but let me go back to one of one of the all-time favorites. Do you remember what was going to be the, the one of the best predictors of how the stock market was going to behave in the year? Does anybody remember the Super Bowl predictor? Oh, oh yeah. How how the Super Bowl turned out sort of was an indicator. <laughs> Depending on yeah. whether it was a team from the original NFL or a team from the original AFL. It was like 24 out of 25 years. The winner of one meant the market went up. The the other one won, the market went down. And so now people legitimately actually started to trade on that correlation. I think I have more faith in the octopus now. Um, (laughs) Are those people without financial advisors, I'm guessing? Yes, they probably are. Thank you very much. Yes, this is why you need a a professional financial advisor. (laughs) Shameless plug, Shameless plug. But now, again, that's an extreme example of, of things that are correlated but have nothing to do with causation. Let me interject one more thing. We are also living in a day and age when we have become spoiled with real time. Yes. Everything. E- everything. You're looking at my notes, aren't you? No, I'm not. Were you going to go there? Well, I have my very next sentence after what I just said on my notes. My very next line says, and I'm not kidding, short-term volatility. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Random noise causes all of that short-term volatility because we're we're looking at things that are happening right then, mm-hmm. whether it's a stock price, whether it's an inflation rate, whether it's an exchange rate. Mm-hmm. You know, if, what's the dollar doing? Is the dollar getting stronger? Is it getting weaker? And those may not be at all directly related to what the Fed is trying to do with the money supply, but talking heads are going to have to make them attributed to those things because they've got they got to fill airtime. They've got to talk about something. So they're going to use all these short-term things to try to explain long-term reactions. It's just human nature, right? You're filling airtime or you're an expert. you got to sound like you know what you're talking about. It sounds like a hodgepodge of statistics, what's going on right now in this moment. You're right. And how all of that will translate to end result. And And nobody really... No. no, it goes back to my all-time favorite saying, which every student I've ever had in 40 years knows by heart, 
There are no future facts. There you go. You can take your best guess, and you and you do nine times out of ten, you're probably wrong. You try to <laughs> you try to work probabilities. I, like I said, I'm a stat guy. Mm-hmm. But now we've got all this noise, and now that influences market sentiment, how people think about what's going on. Right? It invests how you invest, how you think about spending, how you think about taking trips. What am I going to buy? Am I going to sell the house? Am I going to rent? All of these short-term fluctuations in these key economic indicators that come out month after month after month are often being driven by random noise. And that creates uncertainty and confusion, and we don't like that. We want order. We want things that are rational, right? When do we get to the point where, I mean, the emotional nature of the market just has always been this just exponentially ramps it up. It I does. Mean, it, it, it adds more crazy to the crazy. It's the, it's the ability for all of that additional data out there that accelerates exponentially the amount of noise that's in the system. Everybody is looking for the next big thing to make, make a million overnight. Yeah. Well, that's that need for immediacy. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you've got all these other global events. You've got all, well, look at all the natural disasters that can occur. You've got everything that's happening in geopolitics that can occur. You don't know what those are until they're there, right? And so even technological advances, think AI, right? Mm-hmm. Think artificial intelligence. Those can generate random fluctuations that are going to overshadow or interact with what the Fed's trying to do. As they're trying to manage the money supply. All of a sudden, everybody starts going up with prices. Anything that has anything to do with AI, everybody wants to get into that. Well, that pushes things up, which is going counter to what the Fed was trying to do in the first place <laughs> because of, of, you know, all of that confounding effects that's happening. So it's not ever going to be easy, right? We're our own worst enemy. We're our own worst enemy. Right. And now there's this... Other little thing I want to touch on here in, in, our, in our last few minutes here, and uh, this was a very recent article I was reading talking about um, what's called in, in finance terms, when you shift from what drives policy from one thing to another, you say you've gone to a new regime. So you shouldn't go back and look at data in something when things were different and use that to predict what's going to happen. You get what's called a regime change, not like in the, you know, not like in office, political office. Mm-hmm. But in other words, you don't want to go back and look at data before credit cards existed to predict. Because you're comparing an apple to a mango. Yes. Okay. Exactly. You just threw out the orange. I really feel bad about I, that. I, anybody can say an apple and an orange. I have always said an apple and a mango. Sounds like an apple and an orange have a lot more in common than an apple and a mango does. Exactly. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, don't don't let You're us go down this rabbit hole. We'll we'll chase this all day. <laughs> well, okay. So what's happened is a lot of people in the markets now are saying that we've got a quote unquote new regime. Which in a lot of ways simply means we can't use what's happened in the last fifteen years to at all predict what's going to happen in the next ten. Things have changed. Dramatically. I mean a dramatic shift in how people spend money and think about money. So what's happened is there's, there's this wonderful chart that was developed a number of years ago 
that looks at the difference between – oh, and I'm getting in the weeds again. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> you love being in the I weeds. Do, you, I do. You should not be apologizing. I live, I live in the weeds, yes, I, I have to admit. But <clears throat> there's what's called a term premium needed to buy a 10-year government treasury bond compared to a money market fund. And historically, that premium of what I'm going to get to get a 10-year bond has to pay about six-tenths of a percent more than what a money market fund pays because of the uncertainty of what's going to happen over the next 10 years. So you have to get what's called a ter- – they call it a term premium. Okay. If I'm going to tie my money up for 10 years, I want – and I'm going to hold it those 10 years. I know I'm going to get my money back, but – what if, what if rates change? And so because it should always be a little higher than what I could get in a money market, or why would I ever, you know, why would right. you ever? Have, you're, you're tying the money up for 10 years. You deserve to be paid and, something and, extra. And basically for the last three or four years, that term premium has been negative. Money market funds are now paying more, more than, than the 10-year. There is no term premium. It's averaged about one and a half percentage points if you go all the way back to 1961, which is when they started tracking this. Okay? But after 2016, seven years ago, no matter how low rates are, quantitative easing, low inflation, it turned negative. Is that noise or is that a signal that has yet to be determined? And we're all out of time and I'm all out of answers. So thanks for being with us. I've had a lot of fun. I hope you found it interesting. I really do. If you'd like to see more like this, please go to Boland's Alley at alleninvestments.com. Take care. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida, LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial, LLC, LPL, Registered Investment Advisors. Securities offered through LPL, member FINRA, SIPC.